Would you pray with me as we begin? Heavenly Father, we open our hearts and our minds to hear what you have to say. We ask that you will speak to us. Speak of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us on a cross and was resurrected on the third day, and who will rule in heaven. Lord, we look forward to that day. I pray that you will reveal yourself this morning in your word and in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, today is a Communion Sunday. If you hadn't figured that out, we are observing Communion this morning, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a memorial ceremony, and it remembers what Christ has done for us in the crucifixion, paying the price for our sin, and bringing the promise of eternal life. And it ensures that while we're in that mode waiting for Jesus to return, that we will never forget what he's done for us and never forget what it means. Now the meal remembers, but the Lord's Supper is also a promise. We're to observe this symbolic meal until Jesus returns. Now the meal is practice. We've said before that it's, it's kind of a wedding rehearsal for the real deal, for the day of the wedding supper of the Lamb. When Jesus comes again, it changes everything. Jesus' coming means a whole new level of intimacy with God. It means the establishment of his final kingdom forever. You know, we look forward to heaven after death, but we're told here to look beyond heaven to a new heaven and a new earth, a permanent place where we'll live together forever with God. Now, that's an amazing promise. We're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about that place. We're in the final weeks of our sermon series, Famous Last Words. It's a study in Revelation, and these last four weeks of the study, we're looking at the new heaven and new earth in Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. Last week, we talked about what it's going to be like. What will it be like to be living in this place, this new heaven and earth? We'll be living in a place where God himself wipes away every tear. There won't be any crying, no mourning because there's no more death, and there won't be any more pain. There will be a completely new way of doing things, a completely new way of living. God himself is going to be there. He's going to be with us, among us, in a different way so that our experience of him will be, again, intimate, but beyond anything we've ever had before. If you think about the most intimate worship experience that you've ever had, uh, just think about that for a moment. The most intimate and beautiful worship experience that you've ever had. That is just a tiny taste of what it's going to be like. Today we're talking about the New Jerusalem, and uh, we're starting in Revelation uh, chapter 2, and I want to read just this, this verse 2 for a moment, just to... I will. I'll read it, whether it shows up there or not. Uh, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, that's how the chapter starts. But then we jump down a little further. And, and I encourage you to open your Bible to Revelation chapter 21. 
we're going to be reading the second part of Revelation, and uh, we're going to be starting at verse 9. And uh, as you read, I want you to notice, what are some of the things that are said about the New Jerusalem? And then we're going to talk about some of that. So let me begin reading, starting at at, uh, verse 9 of Revelation 21. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked to me had a measuring rod and gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and as high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement. It was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were the twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and the Lamb is the lamp. The nations will walk by its light, And the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will the gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. I find it kind of breathtaking as I look at this description. It's, it's this beautiful image. And, you know, I think John is, is, it sounds like he's struggling to describe it. He's describing it with things that he knows, these gems and gold and the glory of God. It has its own light shining in it. It's a city that radiates God's glory, and it's beautiful. We want to talk briefly about Five things about that city this morning. I want to talk about these things. I want to talk about the bride, the city, the temple, the light, and the people. The bride, the city, the temple, 
the light, and the people. Well, the first thing we want to look at is the bride. Did you notice right at the beginning that the holy city Jerusalem is described as a bride? Now, wait a minute. <laughs> There's something wrong with that. I mean, just a few weeks back, we talked about the bride of Christ and, and the wedding supper of the Lamb, and we said that the people of Christ are the bride of Christ. Now John is saying that the city is the bride of Christ. But at the beginning of this part, at the beginning of this vision that John had, or this part of John's vision, there's an angel who comes, and this is an angel we met earlier when the plagues were happening and when the judgments were being handed out, and this same angel serving God comes to him and, and says to him, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Say what? The wife? The wife of the Lamb. How can the people of God be the bride and the city of God be the bride? I mean, how does that work? Uh, John Stott has a pretty simple answer. He says, he says, the apostle John is really bad at mixing his metaphors. <laughs> like he just runs from one thing right into the next as if it doesn't matter whatsoever. And he does it kind of like a rock star. He does it just shining and just ignores any differences. But... We're not being made to choose here. We're not having to choose between the bride of Christ being the people and the bride of Christ being the city. In a way, in a very real way, it's both. I know that's very convenient and confusing at the same time. Jerusalem, the city of God, has always been associated with God's people, with his close relationship with them, with his covenant with them. And this whole section, at its core, is about a new relationship between God and his people. It's about a deeper relationship, one like we haven't had before. The city, the new Jerusalem, is to be the dwelling place of God and his people. But in many ways, we the church are the city. Think about what it says in chapter 21. I'm going to read a little piece again. The 12 gates of the city bear the name of the 12 tribes, and the city rests on 12 foundations, each with the name of one of the apostles. The people of God and the church of God are, in fact, built on Israel and built on the 12 apostles, aren't we? That's who we are. That's our foundation. Ephesians 2.20 says, we are, okay, <laughs> Let's go back a bit. I think we're way ahead. I'm going to give up on that. Okay, Ephesians 2.20 says that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In Christ, you are the temple of God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When the city comes down out of heaven, slide, we see it prepared or dressed as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, 
it's very similar to what's said about the people of God. The people of God, uh, back in, in just a couple of chapters ago, they're shown as being dressed in fine linen, as being dressed in beautiful, clean, white linen, a wedding dress for the wedding supper of the Lamb. Here there's a slightly different image. You may know that the, the bride in a wedding in Jerusalem or in, in Judea would have come sometimes dressed with her full dowry attached. And so you'll see, have you ever seen those pictures of uh, an ancient bride with coins draped across her forehead or sometimes dangling from her waist? And that's dressed ready for the wedding. That's ready to move to the next phase of her life. And here we see the city of God. It's adorned with all of its wealth. It's adorned with its dowry. It's got its price on display. And it's beautiful. We see the city prepared, dressed as a bride. Now, David captured this city about 3,000 years ago. And when he captured it, he made that city his own home. He made that the center of his kingdom. He even called it, this is the city of David. Now, gave it his own name. Later on, we began to refer to it as the city of God because it was his chosen city. Well, now, here in heaven, Jerusalem is again the center of God's kingdom. It's in the very midst of it. Now, I want to talk about the city, the city of God. The original holy city, the city of David, was the ancestral and spiritual home to God's people for, well, ever since the 10th century B.C., the Jews considered Jerusalem as the center of the universe, the center of the world. And, and it even got a special status in the law. You might know that Jews who live far away from Jerusalem always pray facing Jerusalem. Sometimes that city, we call it what? We call it Zion, right? It's up on Mount Moriah, it's not, they call it sometimes Mount Zion, and, and even sometimes Israel is called Zion. So that can be a little bit confusing, but often Jerusalem itself is called Zion. Do you know that old song, Marching into Zion? Do you know that song? You might have sung it you know, in your youth, or you might sing it at camp. Um, it, it's not talking about marching into Jerusalem. It's talking about going to the new Jerusalem. We're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion, the beautiful city of God. We're talking about marching into the new Jerusalem. It's talking about reaching heavenly fields. It talks about walking on golden streets. You know, there's some cliche things we say about heaven, right? We, said, we talk about streets paved with gold. We talk about heaven's pearly gates. Well, that comes from right here. This is where that comes from. Billy Graham, uh, many years ago, gave an interview to Time magazine, and uh, he was talking about how in his youth he was um, a little presumptuous, a little overenthusiastic, maybe a little bit immature, and he said that when he first began doing evangelistic crusades and, and rallies, he would talk about how everybody was going to get their mansion in heaven, we're all going to get a Cadillac and we'll be driving down those streets of gold. <laughs> he said he kind of tempered that a little bit as he got older. But the streets of gold part was dead right. <clears throat> and the word mansions, you know, says, 
Jesus told his disciples, in my house there are many rooms or many mansions in the King James Bible. It really means many dwelling places. In fact, that, that word has an even larger intention. In my house there are many homes, places of long-term dwelling. You know, the gates here are literally made of pearl. That's why we call them the pearly gates. They're made of a single pearl each. Hard for us to imagine that, but, but this is what it was. You know, we talk about heaven a lot in funerals, and that's a very natural place to do that because that's the next step. But what we use to describe it is actually words from these passages that talk about the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, our forever home with Jesus. We assume that heaven is very much like this new heaven and earth in those qualities, and so that's why we use these verses when we do that. Revelation 21 goes into all kinds of detail describing the city of Jerusalem. The angel in John's vision actually has this golden rod and he measures the city, right? He measures the city, he says it's 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and as high as it is long. Now, if we translate that into our units of measurement, the city is 1,400 miles long. It's 1,400 miles wide and it's 1,400 miles tall. That is a really big city. But I don't really think that size is the point. The point is actually the shape. It's a cube. It's a perfect cube. And guess what else is identically a perfect cube? The Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem. And the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle before that. God dwelt first in the tabernacle and then in the temple in Jerusalem, specifically in this cube-shaped Holy of Holies room. But you know, as we read the description of the new Jerusalem, we find that there's something missing. And what's missing is the temple. John says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now, we know, theologically speaking, we know that God didn't really live in the temple. He didn't confine himself to that place. The temple was essentially symbolic. We know that one of the attributes of God is that he's omnipresent. That means he can be everywhere at the same time at once. He is not restricted to a single location. Colossians 1.17 tells us that God is above all things and holds all things together. He created the universe and he sustains it. He wasn't confined to the cube-shaped room in the tabernacle or in the temple in Jerusalem. He only revealed himself there in those places. But the symbolism of the Holy of Holies and the shape of the new Jerusalem, the average Jew, they would get that. They would understand that. This is not hidden knowledge from them. And, and in fact, probably the average Christian of the day would have understood that too. 
they recognize that this is talking about the dwelling place of God. Well, the closest a Gentile convert could get to the temple was the court of the Gentiles, this big outer court. The next court in is the court of the women. The one after that, the court of the men. Only the priests could go into the temple. And only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. And then he could only go in there once a year on Yom Kippur. They've developed a tradition over the year that you may be familiar with that, you know, they did things, uh, they were worried what would happen if he messed up in there and God struck him dead. And so after, you know, in the late centuries of the temple, they, they uh, tied a rope around his foot. And they put little bells around the bottom of his robe so that as he walked, he kind of jingled. You know, I have a bell on my cat's collar so I know where she is when she's moving. They were wondering, they wanted to know where the priest was. They wanted to know that he was still active. Those little bells would ring and, and if they just stopped. And it was a long time. They'd think he was dead and they would pull him out by his foot. <laughs> Well, I don't know if that ever really happened, that they had to do that, but that was the preparation. The Holy of Holies was what it, its name is. It was holy. It was sacred. It was set apart only for God's use. It was the place where he revealed himself. The temple, with this kind of hierarchical structure of access, you know, the, the Gentiles were furthest away, the women were next farthest away, and then the men were there, and then the priests, and then the high priest. You know, there's this hierarchy of access to God. But even with the highest access, you really didn't have daily access where you could come directly into God's presence. It reminds us of our sin, the sin that separates us because of the holiness of God. Not that our sins are hierarchical like that, but that all of us are separated from God by our sin before Jesus. But on the cross, Jesus dealt with our sin. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, we're no longer separated from God when we come into a relationship with him. And, you know, in the New Jerusalem, where God lives among his people, there's no veil between us and him. There are no courts that restrict our access to him. There's no hierarchy of access. There's no law that keeps us from entering his presence because he is present in a way never experienced by humans before. In this temple... He is revealed all the time because he is the temple. Now, what's the purpose of a temple? It's for worship, isn't it? What's the purpose of this building? We come here on Sunday mornings. We gather here. We come here to worship together, don't we? Worshiping God in this new Jerusalem, in this place, we don't have to go to a building. We don't have to get in the car, wake up early, get the kids ready, go in. We just worship because God is right there with us in his full revealed presence. And we can worship everywhere. There won't be any barriers of any kind. So 
not only is there no temple, there's also no sun and moon, if you can imagine that. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is the lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. In John's vision, the city of God shines with the glory of God. That's because God the Father and Jesus the Lamb are the light. And it says the people of every nation. And if you think back, you know, when, when we started our study way back in Revelation chapter 7, we talked about this group that we see in front of the altar of God. And it says they're people of every nation and tribe and people and tongue. The nations will be brought into it. All the nations will walk in the light of God. Ancient Jerusalem at nighttime would lock down its gates. They'd shut down all of the gates all the way around. They'd have this very small gate, sometimes called the needle gate, that you would have to go through if you wanted access. That's why it was hard for the camel to go through the eye of the needle. And, and they'd have to get through that squishy little gate because everything else was locked down for protection. But here it says it's daytime all the time. It never becomes night. And here it says those gates never shut because there's no need for protection. We don't need prote protection from whom? There's no one to be protected from. Those gates are just a decoration. And the city is your safe forever home. It's completely secure with nothing to fear. None of its people serve anyone but God. And that's the very last part of this, and that's the people. What's it say about the people? It says, the glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Who are the people who get to live here? Who are the people who live in this beautiful, safe, peaceful place in the presence of God and in the light of God? These are the people of the Lamb. These are the ones with their names written in the Lamb's book of life. They believed in Jesus. They've been forgiven. So there's, there's nothing to keep them from God's kingdom. They have no sin because sin at this point has been destroyed. And their sin was forgiven anyway. They have no shame. You remember there's, there's shame in the Garden of Eden when the fall occurs. But there's no shame here. They have no deceit. Nor will anybody try to deceive them. Because there's nobody to do that. The old way of living, which was driven by the sin nature, it's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. The only ones living here in God's presence are his own. His own. 
As believers in Christ, we are the bride of Christ, symbolized and represented in that beautiful city. The Lord's Supper we share today is a wedding rehearsal. One day we will eat supper at God's table. I, I, you know, I always love the story, we talked about it not too long ago, the story of Mephibosheth, you know, the, the son of David who had been crippled and as they were escaping and, and um, how David brings Mephibosheth, if I can say that right, into his home and to the table. And he, it says he always ate at David's table. And what that means is that David became part of the family. Only family ate at the table. And what it means that we're going to come and eat with the Lord at the wedding supper of the Lamb, it means we're family. And we've been adopted fully into God's family. One day we're going to eat at that table with the Lord Jesus himself, and we'll have a close and everlasting bond with our Lord as his chosen ones. We have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. His blood and broken body are represented by the wine and the bread that we share in communion that we're going to be sharing with at this table this morning. In a few minutes, uh, after we bless the elements, we're going to invite you to the table to receive the bread and the cup. Um, we are using matzah, the unleavened bread, for the bread this morning. And of course, the cups are the pre-filled cups, and they have a piece of bread underneath Anyway, so if you're uncomfortable taking bread from a common tray, then you can always use the bread that's in the bottom of the cup, okay? If you prefer, you can take it from the tray and share in the unleavened bread. After you've got served, the deacons, our deacon couple um, this morning, Steve and Kathy, are going to be serving you. And after you've been served, we ask you to return to your seat and wait for everybody to get served. And when everybody's been served, we're going to do the ceremony together and uh, share in it together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this supper that reminds us of your sacrifice for us. Your body and your blood sacrificed for our freedom from sin. We thank you that the Lord's Supper points the way to the Lamb's Supper when the church will be your bride. The time when evil will be done and you will reign forever as our King and our Lord among your people. We ask that you would prepare our hearts now in these moments. We silently confess our sin to you and ask your forgiveness.